Well, the reading is Matthew 11, and it's just a few verses, so I'll read it from verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Good afternoon and welcome, um, Jeremy, I'm one of the leaders, and um, we're going to walk you through our final week in the Habits of Grace series, and we are looking at the Habit of Rest, it's our third week on it. The first week we looked at the Habit of Rest was on the idea of a practice of a day of rest, and the pattern that's set up there in scriptures, six days work, one day clear rest, and then uh, following that last week we looked at the flip side of rest, which is work, if our work is spilling out everywhere it's going to be very difficult to rest. And on this final week, we're looking at uh, the rest that Jesus promised in his earthly ministry uh, and also how it is that he provides that and how it is that he models that. Now, I know I've gone on a little bit about the fact that I, um, that I have a dumb phone. If you're new this week, you're welcome. It's a freebie. And I am conscious that the more I talk about it, I'm concerned that I'm going to be on the front end of a new self-righteous fad in the line of many self-righteous fads that have come through. So I just want to be, sort of put that caveat out there. But look, one thing it does do, when you don't have anything to do with your phone, when there's literally nothing on there, all I have is like an, an FM radio that blares, you know, noisy rubbish, right? You can barely understand. When there's nothing that draws into your phone, when you're, at, when you're at waiting places, all you can do is look around and notice what's happening. And the, the pattern that I notice is, whenever someone in our city by themselves, inevitably they're looking at a screen. Inevitably. It's every bus stop, every cafe, every waiting room, every kid's playground, presumably every toilet cubicle, anywhere where we are alone, we are like this. And I wondered, just to think of it this way, if there was intelligent life out there that came to earth to observe human behavior, surely if they were to see humanity doing this, they'd be like, that must be how they get food. It's from the blue light source or whatever is in that device. That's how they get food because they're on it so much. And it's crazy to think about. But the thing that really gets, needs to get beneath that question is, is why? Why is it? I mean, the technology is available. We don't have to use it that way. What is so compulsive about the way that we use it? What draws us to it? Every time we're by ourselves, it's a reflex. You, you almost have to resist it. You notice when you don't have your phone because you feel you're about to do it and then you realize you don't have your phone. Why is it? Well, several hundred years ago, Blaise Pascal, a mathematician and philosopher, put out uh, this thought. It's when you think of this. He wrote, All of man's misfortune comes from one thing, which is not knowing how to sit quietly in a room. Anyone who does not see the vanity of the world is very vain himself. So who does not see it apart from young people whose lives are full of noise, diversions, and thoughts for the future? But take away their diversion, and you'll see them bored to extinction. Then they feel their nullity without recognizing it, for nothing could be more wretched than to be intolerably depressed as soon as one is reduced to introspection with no means of diversion. You don't know what he's saying. He's saying there's, there's nothing more miserable than if you are, have lost all diversion and are left just to consider the enormity of our being and our aloneness in the universe. That's a heavy thought. But I think he nailed something. I think that is the very thing that we are running from. 
I think that is the very reason why many in the city cannot bear to be alone with their thoughts and turn to a device almost instinctively. We're running from something. We have very little mental space to think about things and we kind of like it that way. We fill up every last spot, every last corner, every last second of time so that we don't have to sit there and think. And because of this, we're exhausted. We can't stop. We are constantly on. We're constantly peppering our minds with stimuli to the point where we are just tired and worn out. And we need rest, and not just rest for our bodies, we need rest for our soul. Our soul is looking for rest. And the good thing about that is that the very passage that we just read out is where Jesus promises that very thing. He promises rest for your soul. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, rest for your soul. And so I'm going to pray that as we dig into Jesus' words and as we look into his life and teaching and ministry, we will see how it is that we'll find this rest that he has promised, that he's not a charlatan selling something that he can't deliver, but that he is faithful and true, God as man, able to give the rest that we're looking for. I'm going to pray for us. Father God, we praise you that you are the God of rest, that you know us, and you know the depths of the human soul. You know our deepest longings and desires. You made us, and you have made us for relationship with you. And Father, you have made a way back to you that even in sin, when we had left and gone our own way, that through Jesus and his blood on the cross, that you have made a way back to you to find peace and rest and hope in you. And we pray as we dig into your word this afternoon that you would show us yourself in a new and profound way, that you would revive our souls, that we might see your glory and your wonder and see what it means to find true rest. And we pray all of this for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, Jesus was a man, obviously, who walked the earth 2,000 years ago, and he made the most extraordinary claims that anyone has ever made who didn't end up in a shootout with state police. He made the claim that he was God. He made the claim that he was the way, the truth, and the life which means that he claims to know all there is to know about humanity, about what we want or need, and to have the answers on it, and that's massive. And so the promise that we read in Matthew chapter 11 is no different to the rest of Jesus' life and teaching. It's an extraordinary claim. Look at what he says here, Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus says to, to us, Come to me, all you who are weary. Are you weary? Weary is different to tired. It's possible to be tired, physically tired, and not weary. It's possible to be completely well rested and to still be weary. Weary is different to tired. Weary is a description of the condition of the soul. Weary is when you are over it, you are strung out, cynical, sarcastic, just done with it. Like as Tolkien writes in Lord of the Rings, when you feel like too little butter spread over too much bread, where you are just strung out, tired, gone, finished. And if you feel this, well, this is good news for you. Jesus is talking directly to you. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And anyone who has taken stock of the predicament we're in as humankind, has some cause to be weary or burdened, at least at some point. 
And so Jesus says, come to me and you'll find deep and abiding and true rest. But the question then is, well, how? How is it that he's going to back up his word? Jesus claimed that his ministry, that his mission on earth, that he was God in human form, come to earth, he said, to seek and to save the lost. That was his direct purpose statement. He said, I've come to seek and save the lost. And the idea of being lost in Scripture is the idea that in sin we've rejected God. We've said, God, I don't want to live your way. I don't want a relationship with you. I'm going to do things my own way. And he lets us do it. And when we do that, we are cut off from the very source of life, awaiting the judgment where we will stand before him and have to give an account and face the wrath of God. But he says, in this state, we are disconnected from our Creator and our Maker, and we are lost, displaced. There is a, a, a break in the very relationship that is crucial to human flourishing and living because it is a break with our Creator. And I think at the bottom of everything that most people have felt this lostness at some point in their life. If they've been honest enough to sit with their own thoughts long enough, we've felt something of this lostness at any given point. One comedian uh, who was on a talk show, and he has a, this, the clip became reasonably famous, so you may have, may have heard some sort of quotes from it. Uh, but he was kind of riffing about uh, people being on their phones and all that sort of gear. And it's sort of a lengthy quote, but uh, hopefully you can track with it. He, he said this, You need to build an ability to just be yourself and not be doing something. That's what the phones are taking away, is the ability to just sit there. That's being a person. Because underneath everything, it gets quite bleak. Because underneath everything in your life, there is that thing, that empty, that forever empty. That knowledge that it's all for nothing and that you're alone. It's down there. And sometimes when you clear things away, you're not watching anything, or you're in your car, you're starting to go, oh no, here it comes, that I'm alone. It starts uh, to visit on you, just this sadness. Life is tremendously sad just by being in it. That's why we text and drive. We look around and pretty much 100% of people are drive, who are driving are texting. And they're killing. Everybody's murdering each other with their cars. But people are willing to risk taking a life and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for a second because it's so hard. Now, comedians in our culture and sometimes function as prophets and try to put their, their finger on something. And I think, given how much it was shared and reshared, that he may have struck a chord on something. The phones are giving us the ability to avoid deeply thinking on our position in the universe. That is, if there is no God, we are cosmically alone. And Jesus describes this state as lostness. We're disconnected from our Creator God, and that we feel it at times, and that He is the answer to it. That he is the one who has solved this cosmic problem by, reuni- by making a way to reunite us with the God with whom we broke relationship by his own body, by dying on the cross. Paul, the apostle and missionary, wrote in Romans an explanation of Jesus' life and ministry and particularly his death. In Romans 5 and then in 8 and 9 we read this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. In sin we were enemies with God, facing his righteous wrath, and Jesus steps in the breach and bears the punishment for us on our behalf, so that by his blood anyone who places their faith in him is washed completely clean and set free and now has peace with God. 
It says, where there was enmity, because of Jesus, there is now peace. Where there was cosmic aloneness and alienation and separation, there is now reconciliation. This is the primary way in which Jesus brings rest. He brings us back in a relationship with our Creator God. Where there was no way back, He makes a way back. He brings peace and He brings rest for the soul. Augustine, one of the church fathers, put it this way. He says, You have made us for Yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in You. The first and primary meaning of Jesus' promise of rest here is that He brings us back in a relationship with our Creator God, where our soul will be at rest. Where when you have time to think on the depths of reality, rather than it being a reality of despair, you know it to be a reality of peace. That you have peace with the God of the universe and it is guaranteed forever. That is life-changing. That is an incredible gift that you can find nowhere else. Jesus promises rest and the first way that He delivers it is by His blood on the cross. But then the question might be, okay, well, if that's the rest that He promises, once I know Jesus and I place my faith in Him, does that mean then I have sort of transcended human physical barriers? I can just, I can work endlessly. I don't need sleep anymore. I just need to have more faith. I just trust in Jesus. Well, no. And we know that because Jesus modeled what it was like to walk on earth and to live in perfect relationship with your Heavenly Father. And we see in His life a pattern and one to imitate. See, secondarily, Jesus brings rest by His example. Jesus' soul was not always at rest. So when Jesus promises rest, He doesn't mean that every second of your life is going to be restful, that you will never, you will never face any sort of tumult in your life, because we know from His life and ministry that that wasn't life for Him. If you don't believe me, I'm not just like hypothesizing. This is what we read in the same gospel where Jesus promises this rest. In chapter 26, look at what Jesus says about the condition of his soul. He's in a garden, he's about to be wrongfully arrested, and then he'll be tried and executed, and he will face the wrath of God for all humankind. And look at what he says. Then Jesus went with them, this is his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here, while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep. And take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus is sorrowful and troubled. He says his soul is sorrowful and troubled, even to the point of death. This is as unrested as a soul can possibly be. He is torn up because he knows what he is about to face. When he's talking all this language about the cup, he's talking about facing the punishment for sin for all humankind. He knows it is about to break upon his head, and he knows the weight of that, and he is 
feeling it. His soul is deeply troubled. This is as troubled as a soul can be. And so what does Jesus do when his soul is in this condition? In Matthew 26, 39, what do we read? Being in his condition of troubled soul, Jesus went a little farther and he flicked open his phone and he checked his Insta feed and DMs and he felt much better about life and he was cool to go on. Going a little further, he ordered Uber Eats and binged out on nine hours of Netflix back to back and afterwards he just felt better about things. He can't explain why. Now what does it say? So his soul is deeply troubled. In one gospel we're told he's even sweating almost drips, drops of blood. He's under that much strain. And it says, and he went a little further and he fell on his face and he prayed. He prayed to his heavenly father. When his soul was carrying the weight of the world and he needed rest and he felt nothing but trouble, he turned for refreshment to his heavenly father. He prays. Jesus shows us how to find rest by his blood but secondly, it shows us by his example. And you might be saying, well, look, what's happening here isn't typical of Jesus' ministry. There's only one point where the Son of God dies for all the sin of humankind. This is a very unique moment. You can't kind of spin this out to a pattern. But this was the pattern of Jesus' life. Look what it says in the Gospels. Mark 1.35, it'll come up for you. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, as if early in the morning wasn't clear enough to start with, while it was still dark... He departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And after he had dismissed the crowds, Matthew 14, 23, he went up on the mountain to, uh, by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Luke 6, 12, the same thing. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Luke 5, 16, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. This was a pattern. This wasn't like a rare moment. It wasn't an idea that he came up with on the spur of the moment. This is the pattern of his life. With all the strain, the busyness, the stress, the weight that he bears, his pattern was to constantly withdraw to be with his heavenly Father to draw strength and rest from him. He constantly withdrew. Constantly. Why, why is it that if Jesus, the Son of God, perfect humanity embodied for us, finds rest in prayer, that we don't instinctively find it restful? Well, more than that, even as, even as I read out those passages about him going away to desolate places, did it even evoke for you just the sense of like, that sounds really like spooky and lonely. And again, it probably just plays to what we've kind of read through, right? That actually we struggle to just be alone with our thoughts sometimes. It even sounds like a punishment more than a rest. If really is that restful, if this is what refreshes the soul, to draw deep on the reality, the peace that we have with God and to enjoy relationship with Him by reaching out in prayer... Why is it that it isn't more instinctive? Why isn't it more natural? Why does it kind of feel like, actually, as I think about it, it feels like hard work? I've one thought on why. I think we are practiced, or so practiced, in trying to switch off by passivity that we actually we can't believe that anything that would require effort would be rest. Most of the things that are best for us and most restful require some kind of effort or self-discipline. But most of the things that we turn to by instinct actually are just kind of passive. But the worst thing about it is most of the things that we turn to when we are stressed or when we are worried or when our soul is troubled, most of them actually make it worse. Even think about it like this. The, this week I was reading an article by a, a, um, like a parenting expert 
And they were talking about um, why it's not helpful to try and use TV as, as downtime for kids. Um, and any parents who have, have done this will, will know that it's the case. It's, if you sit your kids in front of the TV, it's kind of like when Frodo puts on the ring in Lord of the Rings. Like they, they go invisible for a while, but something happens to their soul where they just get, like they come out of it on the other side just irritable and dark. But um, here's the kind of the, the more scientific explanation as to why that happens. It says, neuroscientists know that watching TV does not allow the brain to rest properly. While some parts are turned off, analysis and reasoning, other parts are highly stimulated, visual cortex. This prevents the brain from really resting. And other devices cause similar problems in our kids' brains. In reality, the trick to mental relaxation isn't turning off the brain, but changing its focus. Most of the things that we turn to when we want to switch off, when we feel tired, are actually things that are just putting our brain on low hum and just slowly wearing us down. Neuroscientists know that rest really comes from changing focus. Jesus went away to focus on the relationship he had with his father, to meditate deeply on the reality of that relationship, to lean on him in prayer, and was what caused him to survive this earthly ministry. But we are rehearsed, we are practiced in doing things that really don't help us to rest. And so when we think about the idea that prayer will be restful, it just seems like hard work and we avoid it. And we go back to the things that really aren't helping us. We go back to screen time, which is like drinking salt water to quench your thirst. It just makes you thirstier and it goes round and round and round until we're exhausted. So what do we do with all this? Jesus promises rest. He provides it by his blood through which we have peace with God. He modeled it through his earthly ministry. What do we do with it? Well, the first is this. If you don't know Jesus yet, the only way to have this kind of rest and peace is to trust in him for your forgiveness. There's no two ways about it. That is the main way through which he brings rest, is that you have rest with God. You are no longer enemies with God. You are at peace. That is what brings rest to the soul. Distraction, distraction is a temporary solution. The only real solution is to find the God in whom we were made for a relationship. And so I'd urge you, either today or even over the next few weeks as we look at Easter and questions for God, to be diving into this reality and asking whether or not Jesus is worth putting all your trust in because His promises are faithful. If you're someone who knows Jesus, you trust in Jesus, you, feel, you believe He has forgiven your sin completely and you are now in a new reality at peace with God, then the first thing is to do what Jesus did, to get alone with God. Jesus was pressured. He had work to do, but not the busyness of life, nor the needs of the lost or the vulnerable would draw him away from constantly retreating to meet with his heavenly Father in prayer. Jesus had to say no to things in order to say yes to this, to draw on the depth of this reality. And I would urge you in this to carve out time, particularly at the beginning of the day. It doesn't have to be while it's still dark like Jesus, but there is, there is something about meeting with God being the first point of the day. Years ago, C.S. Lewis wrote this about it. He said, it comes to you, it'll come up on the screen for you. It comes to you the very moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists in simply shoving them all back, in listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, Letting, taking that other larger, stronger, quieter life 
come flowing in, and so on all day. Stand back from all your natural fussings and frettings and come in out of the wind. I mean, that was true when he wrote that, what, 60 plus years ago. It, he meant the, the idea of like your hopes and dreams and thoughts for the day rushing in was, was mostly metaphorical for him. Now it's literally happening. You, you, the moment you wake up, even before you wake up, your phone, your devices are peppering you with push notifications. They are hammering you. You have a, a sense of mild stress before you even wake up that the world has already begun and you're late for it and you haven't even got out of bed yet. It is the case that to set the pattern, like in Jesus' ministry, of meeting with God, of depending on Him in prayer, it's going to require, I think, kicking the day off right. Winning the day, as we kind of talked about a little bit last year. I think it is the case that the morning has a, I don't know how you put it, strategic place in terms of depending on God in prayer. I've got to say, as a growing up, I was not in any way a morning person. My wife, Mel, always was. I never was. For me, wake-up time was whatever the minimum time was to get to uni before my first lecture. Whether that was a.m. or p.m., whatever it was for the day, that was my wake-up time. And I, I hated getting up in mornings. And since I've sort of been forced into it, we have kids, and so sleep is adios. But um, I actually, I would have to say now, I love getting up early. Like, I love getting up, even while it's still dark. It's just this part of the year, because it does get so dark in the mornings. But sitting down, start the day by making a coffee, open the Bible, and start by prayer, and it transforms my day. It transforms the very first thing of my day, the way I meet the kids. The difference between me being woken up by them and waking up first to depend on God in prayer, to read His Word, is just worlds apart. And so I'd urge you to set the pattern to carve out the time where you're going to meet with God and pray deeply on things. But I think many of us have this desire or have had this for a long time and seen very little change. And I think it's because if you want to add a healthy habit in, you're probably going to have to cut an unhealthy one out. I've heard it said from someone recently in a sermon that hurry is the great enemy of spirituality. And if you live a hurried life, you will not be able to carve out the clear time to sit in God's Word and to meet with Him and to depend on Him and to connect with Him deeply. And I think it's from this principle. I think it's the idea of kind of, think of it as like dizziness. I don't know if you've, uh, if you've ever spun a kid to the point uh, where they felt sick, but I have. And we were at a park one time, and there was, a, there was one of these, uh, uh, I don't know if you call it a swing, have you seen those big ones that are basically built to KO a kid? They've got these big, like, bumper bars on them. But this one, this one spun around this way, so it's kind of, like, anchored at the top, and it spun around this way, and it spun around this way. So they're getting spinny, like, spinny on two levels. So I don't know, however you want to put it, two axes or something, right? Extra spinny. And so the kids, the kids just, like, the kids just love it. It's an addiction for them. So if you start spinning them, they're just like, just more, more, more. And I was getting a bit hyped up as well. I forgot myself. And so I was just spinning them more and more and more. And then eventually one of the kids just went really quiet. And then so I stopped it. I was like, you're all right, mate. He's like, he didn't say anything. And he just got off and he went to his mum and they went home. And that was the, <laughs> that was the end of playtime for them. And so I thought, all right, let me just, just calm it down next time. But you'll notice when kids get off, get off something, even though they want you to spin them, when they get off, the first thing you'll see is their eyes keep going. Like they're, they're still just jutting across because they're just obviously struggling to adjust. I didn't, I didn't spin them through time. It was just like, it gave them a good spin. Anyway, my kids were fine. That was, he was a weak kid. 
But the, the issue is, even once you get off the thing, your head keeps spinning for a little while after you stop. I think our lives are spinning so quickly and are so jammed up and so bumper to bumper that even when we stop, our heads are still spinning too much to even slow down. There isn't enough kind of clear space around the slow down space that we can actually do it. So the moment you sit down and actually open the Word of God and begin to pray, your mind is already half on other things. It is still spinning. It is the case that hurry is the great enemy of spirituality. If, we, if our life is spinning that fast, we will not be able to cut out time to stop and to focus or to concentrate. You pray half-hearted, distracted prayers, kind of thrown up like confetti, not really expecting them to reach the heavens. You have to slow down and declutter your life. And here are three things that I think would really help. If you were going to take seriously this pattern of withdrawing to pray that Jesus modeled in his ministry, that he has made the way for through his blood. Remember, prayer is a privilege that has come by the blood of Jesus. That is the only way to have God hear your prayers and delight in them. So here are three things that might help with that, with slowing down. The first is to limit phone or screen time or whatever you want to call it. It is the case that if the phone is an avoidance device and the trigger for using it, usually they'll say, is either a sense of inner dissonance or boredom or whatever it is. The moment we feel just funny, we get out of device. And it will be the case that in order to slow down, you have to limit how much access your device has to you. The general principle, they say, is your technology, whatever it is, should go to sleep before you and wake up after you. Whatever you have, TVs, iPads, whatever it is, it should go to sleep before you and wake up after you. Because if not, it's dictating terms to you rather than the other way around. It's not helpful for human flourishing. It's not helpful for slowing down. It keeps us in the spin. It is the case also that the more time you spend on a device the more time you spend multitasking. And it's also the case that multitasking is a, is a false nomad. You know you can't really multitask. What it is, is that you're switch tasking, just really rapidly. The mind really can only focus on one thing at a time. That's what makes it focus. And so the idea that you're doing several things at once is not the case. We're just flipping between them quickly. But again, it teaches the mind to kind of switch quickly between things, which is the exact opposite skill of meditating deeply on something. The more we rehearse that time of switch tasking, the more difficult we make it to slow down and to meet with God in His Word. So whatever it is for you, keep your phone out of your bedroom. There are these crazy things called alarms. They're not even connected to the internet. They just plug straight into the wall. There's no Wi-Fi connection. But if your phone is your alarm, you're going to be peppered with information the moment you wake up. Even if, even if you're only using it for alarm, as soon as you swipe it, there are other things drawing your mind in. Even a few, I mean, it was a few weeks ago, I wanted to check some sports results on my computer, flipped it open, and then a, an email sort of came across my screen and then disappeared. But as soon as I'd seen the title, my mind was on it. And I was thinking, what's that about? Do I need to get onto that now? It's how devices work. They're meant to pull you into other spaces. And so whatever it is, you're going to need to create limits on it. Maybe it's even quitting TV during the week. We've trialed it. It's been a great experiment. Jump on board. Whatever it is, you're going to need to limit phone and screen time that we'll be able to be alone and meet with God. That's the first one. The second one is to find different ways to wind down. Instead of practicing compulsive, addictive ways of slowing down, find ways that are healthy for us to slow down. 
whether it's exercise, reading books, things that are going to help us to switch our focus, the more we practice just getting on something compulsive, the more difficult it will be to slow down and to meet with God. And so maybe it's the way to find better ways to slow down, to create more space. Because it seems to be the case that as soon as we have space, we jam it with more info. Even recently, one of, the, one of the things I have missed on a dumb phone is podcasts. And you're constantly getting recommendations from people about new podcasts. And so that was the one thing where I was like, all right, maybe I can work out a way to download it on one of those old, like, you know, the clicky wheel, iPhone, iPad, or whatever. I don't even know what it's called now. What was it? I, iPod, that's it. Yeah, okay, got it. <laughs> uh, it seems like so long ago. Anyway... Uh, you know, I was thinking, how, could, could I get the podcast on those so I could listen to them while I run? Because that's a good, you know, half hour of clear time where I could, you know, knock out a podcast. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I, don't, maybe I don't need more podcasts in my life. Maybe I don't need to jam every minute of clear airspace that I have with more info. Maybe that's time where I can just think, where I can pray, where I can reflect on the greatness of God, or where I can just stop, just to create more margin. Whatever it is, find ways to unwind that are going to be helpful. And thirdly, to sort out your, your calendar. Uh, again, from a, a, a parenting book, a helpful phrase, talking about the difficulty that parents have often in the morning. Uh, one author said, hurry is the enemy of love. Hurry is the enemy of everything today, but hurry is the enemy of love. And I was like, that's, that's a fair point. If you're in a rush, you know, it, think of it with the context of like getting kids out of the door. If you're in a rush, everything is an annoyance. You know, parents are at fever pitch, right? But it's true of just all of life. If you're constantly rushing from one social event to another, if you've jammed your calendar as full as you can, you don't even have the energy to be present with other people, let alone to then stop and connect with the, your creator who you can't see physically in front of you. It's often the case that our schedules are, are, are just jam-packed. They have no kind of margin around them. Often people say, look, we're, we're okay at managing our time, but we're terrible at managing our energy. We put five social events back to back, not realizing that each of those has a bit of a blast radius around it. Whatever it is for you to know your capacity and to think in the week, what are some things that I might need to say no to that my life might not just be going from one thing to another to another to another? Spun out, dizzy, unable to slow down and to meet with God in His Word and in prayer. Whatever it is, whatever you need to do, Jesus laid it out for us. He invites us into rest and rest for our soul. He has made it all possible through His blood on the cross and He has modeled what it means to live a life walking with our Heavenly Father. Let's pray that He'd give us strength to do so. Father, we praise You that You are ever-present and at the same time You are all-powerful, that You love us and You are near and You have drawn near through Your Son. You have made a way back to you that in sin we were separated from you completely and yet now we are restored to right relationship with you through your Son. And so, Father, we pray that we would follow the model of Jesus' ministry, that we would retreat not into distraction, but meet with you, hear from you through your Word, bring our requests and prayers before you, knowing that you love to hear them and love to answer them. And, Father, we pray that when our soul is troubled, that we would depend on you. And all this we pray for the glory of your name. Amen.